open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 9. Now, as we study the Psalms, you may hear me, you will hear me quote Charles Spurgeon quite often, and you might think, well, gee, does he just copy Spurgeon's sermons and, and give them to us? I mean, Spurgeon had over 400 sermons on the Psalms. His Treasury of David is, in a sense, the magnum opus of works on the Psalms. They are several volumes, very small print, double columns. Um, He digs it out. If it's there in the Psalms, Charles Spurgeon has found it. He has found a way to present it in a sermon. It's not just a commentary, but it is, uh, I mean, he, he, he takes that work and puts it in those 400 plus sermons that he has done on the Psalms. He, it's, it's, uh, it's, he spent 20 years preaching through the Psalms. So you'd probably be better served if I just, you know, copied Spurgeon sermons and gave them to you. Um, but you, so that's why you hear me quote Spurgeon so often because it just is, is the best. It just is so good and so rich, and he's got so much to say on the Psalms. All right, that said, let's stand if you're able, and I will read from Psalm 9. And uh, I'll read through verse 10, and, and we're, I'm just going to kind of pick and choose what we're going to cover today. We're not going to cover the entire Psalm. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we would with clarity come to this psalm to understand how it is we are called to praise you, what we are to praise you for, and be reminded of your care in our life, that it is too good to keep to ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 9. For the choir director on Muth Laban... A Psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before thee, for thou hast maintained my just cause. Thou dost sit on the throne judging righteously. Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and thou hast uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people's equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. For those who know thy name, they will put their trust in thee. For thou, O Lord, has not forsaken those who seek thee. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So we see here the title that's laid out for us um, for the choir director or chief musician. um, And it says, on Muth Laban. Uh, Muth Laban. Hmm. Hmm. That's a tough one, frankly. Uh, We're just not sure what Muth Laban is. Uh, it might be, I mean, this is a psalm to God. Uh, the Generally, the chief musician, that's what it indicates. Maybe Muth Laban is a popular tune. You remember what, what the Star-Spangled Banner, is that it, written to a, uh, a drinking tune or something? Is that what it was? Uh, 
Donald knows, thank you, okay. Uh, but it was common, and, and so it was easy to sing because apparently at that time they did a lot of drinking and singing, so they could sing the national anthem to that tune, okay. Well, some believe that Muthleben refers to a particular tune or instruments on which it was to be played. Uh, others associate the title with, now you may have uh, in your Bible uh, a note, it's in the Pew Bible here at the very bottom, Death to the Son. Death to the Son. It's kind of a strange thing there, Death to the Son. Uh, or concerning uh, death of the champion who went between the camps. And the champion who went between the camps would be David facing Goliath as he went between the Israelites and the um, Philistines. So maybe, and this is all kind of conjecture here, maybe David wrote this remembering what the Lord did all those years ago against Goliath, and now he's older and he's, he's looking back on it. You know, uh, history is a, is, has, sometimes has clearer eyes to judge the events and things that, that, that went on. And so perhaps he's looking back and just kind of rejoicing in what the Lord did in that day. So whatever it is, uh, it's a psalm of David. Now, if we were to list the topics of the psalms, if I said, okay, we're going to study the psalms, what's the first word that comes into your mind when we say we're going to study the psalms? Many people would say, well, the praise or prayer. Uh, well, if we look at the psalms, the first, in the beginning, the psalms are not very much geared towards praise. The last five psalms, as an example, begin and end with the words, praise the Lord. So to some degree, as time goes on, we see much more praising the Lord happening or psalms being written particularly to praise the Lord. If we look at how the book begins, Psalm 1 is kind of a, uh, a doctrinal song. We've got the way of the righteous. We've got the verses the way of the wicked. Uh, psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that points to the things of, of Christ. Uh, ultimately, the next couple psalms are more, um, they ask for help of, for deliverance uh, for the particular situation that the psalmist is in. We get to Psalm 8. And we think that Psalm 8 might be a psalm of praise because it talks about the wondrous works of the Lord, but it's more about the position of man before the Lord than a psalm of praise to the Lord. Not really until we get to the first portion of Psalm 9 do we get to some serious psalms of praise. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, with my whole heart. Um, now, just as a point of, of structure just, just stash it away in your mind. In the earliest uh, Greek translations from the Hebrew, uh, which would be the Septuagint as an example, Psalm 9 and 10 are one psalm. Now they're written as one psalm because it's an acrostic. Verse 1 of Psalm 9 begins with Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then it goes through the vast majority of the Hebrew alphabet through Psalms 9 and Psalms 10. Now, in the Hebrew uh, translations, the Psalms are separated, but they do create this acrostic, which is very common in Hebrew poetry. There's, there's your Hebrew lesson for the day, okay? Now, let's get into it and see verses 1 and 2, what it has to say for us. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. So, 
The first thing that we see here in this psalm of praise is to give thanks to the Lord. How? With our whole heart. With our whole heart. And this really sets the tone for the entire psalm, which is to, for David to declare God's praises with everything that he is. Now, let's look at ourselves. Okay? We come to church and we want to worship with what? Our whole hearts. Well, let's face it. I mean, if we kind of took a survey, we know there are times in our own lives where our bodies are here, but we're not really here, okay? Uh, it is v- sometimes because of the pressures of the week, or sometimes maybe we're just going through a dry spell spiritually. We show up at church hoping that something will happen to kickstart us back into our close relationship with the Lord, but some days it just doesn't happen. We stand up, we sing, uh, we, we, we recite the, the Apostles' Creed because we've done it so many times. It doesn't mean anything to us. We're just going through the words because the worship leader says, let's, share the, let's state what we believe. Uh, over against those times when we, we are singing from our hearts, our whole hearts, when we are totally invested in praising the Lord, or we are totally invested when we say the Apostles' Creed that those things are real to us and there's meat there and we, we grab onto them. So sometimes in our lives, we come to worship and we're not, we're not worshiping with any of our heart. We're just going through the motions. Sometimes we're here and we want to worship with our whole hearts, but, uh, you know, Again, the, the pressures of the world uh, come and, and, and take us away, where sometimes it's just something simple that grabs our attention and pulls us away from worship of the Lord. Maybe just before we walked into worship, somebody said, hey, you want to come to lunch with us after worship? And you said, sure. And now you're thinking, I wonder, I wonder if they have anything there I like. Or, or, gee, Mexican, well, it's going to give me heartburn. But, but you know, oh, I love those people. It would be good. And, and, and before you know it, worship's over. And you've only kind of been partially invested because you're focusing on the Mexican and you're focusing on the, the dip and not getting heartburn and, 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 and all those things. Those things happen. Sometimes we come to worship and, and we come with, with some baggage from the week. We, we've got a friend who's suffering and, and we're just extra burdened for them. And yes, we're here and we're hoping uh, that, that the Lord will hear our cries, but our hearts and minds are kind of focused upon our friends kind of focused upon the Lord, so we're not fully invested in worship. But then there are the other times where we come, and this is what worship is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a little taste of heaven, a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Now, not to say that, that uh, sorry, choir, and I'm part of you, not to say that this is the heavenly choir, okay, but it can be really good some days, right? Okay, now we know we get to heaven, everybody will have perfect pitch, and, and it'll just be fabulous, okay? Um, or, or we'll gather with believers that we have never seen in our life, but because we are part of the body of Christ, we will be so close to them, it'll be better than old home week, because they're part of us. We're part of the body of Christ. I came, and, I came and described that form of intimacy. It is so close because sin will be removed and we will sing of the glories of God for all eternity. That's what worship is supposed to be like. And some days we know we walk out of worship and we are just really jazzed because we have sung to the Lord. We have dug into his word. He has spoken to us. We've given him praise and glory. Well, how do we get our whole heart and our whole head and all that we are into worship and focus so that we can sing and, and praise the Lord. 
Spurgeon said, half a heart is no heart. Half a heart is no heart. That's hard. That is really hard. So to do that, I think, praise cannot be something that happens between 10.30 and 11.45 one day a week. It cannot be reserved for just that hour and 15 minutes. If that's all the time in your week that you are praising the Lord, don't bet that you're going to just manufacture it for that moment. Okay, That can't happen. Remember what we looked at last week in Psalm 3. And here David is hearing these voices of the people who are lying to him, telling him as he's running away from Absalom, he hears these voices and the people are saying, you're no good, God can't forgive you for your sin, come on, he's, you're, you're running out of Jerusalem, this is a sure sign that God has abandoned you. And David was kind of going down in the dumps because he listened to those voices. And then between the verses, remember I, I, I read to you all that fine print about how David took his eyes and ears away from those people? And put them back upon the Lord. And he began to be reminded of the promises of the Lord and the care of the Lord. And his heart was renewed and he focused more upon what the Lord had promised to him. So he was completely different at that point. Now if you spend your week on a regular basis working on praising the Lord then it becomes much more of a habit. You are much more focused upon what the Lord is doing on a regular basis in your life. If If we praise God on a regular basis, we fix our eyes and our hearts on Him and what He has done for us, on His care and His grace in our lives, then, then the idea of our struggles and things become lessened because we're focused upon His promises. Now, when was the last time you purposely talked about God's goodness in your life to another person. Now, if that acknowledgement is a daily occurrence, just think how more, much more suited your heart would be to praise. If this was a regular occurrence in your life, let me tell you what the Lord means to me. And just, and just told that to people. What he was doing, what a difference he was making. If you talk to people about his goodness, that, that your heart would be much more conformed to the things of Christ. Now, if you are listening to a, a radio program, who is it? it's Feinbaum, is that it? On, on Alabama football. And if you listen to that every day, your heart is ready to talk about Alabama football. Okay? Now, just as an aside, Auburn beat Kentucky in basketball yesterday. So, you know, that was very good, very good. Then you're ready to eat and sleep and dream Alabama football because between the, the hours of, I don't know, when, let's say 2 and 6, you're listening to Feinbaum talk about football, and you're ready for it. And you see somebody at breakfast the next morning, and you talk about football. So if you begin to focus your attention upon the Lord in the same way, and the way that he has worked in your life, and the things that he has done, and the glories of his word, you go to breakfast and you're ready to talk about the Lord. Because your eyes are there. Let's look into three things that David tells us that he does. And maybe we can do them as well. I will tell of all your wonders, your marvelous works. 
This is important. This is often neglected in our lives uh, to simply telling people about what God has done. Now, it it might be in our own lives, but it's also a history lesson here that, that we'll see in a moment that David regularly tells people about what God has done in the past to fix in everybody's mind that this is the God who has all power and all authority. This is still the God who loves me. I once heard somebody say in a conversation, I was eavesdropping, I hardly ever hear Christians talk about what God has done. Maybe they don't have anything to talk about. And I thought about that in my own life, and I hate the question, what's God done in your life this week? Okay, Randy, tell me about it. Now, when, when I get that question, I get the real feeling that somebody wants to know that while I was in a car wreck and the car rolled over eight times and, you know, the Lord brought me out of the car and transported me over to the side of the road and there I was with no bumps or bruises. They want to hear something big. Tell me what the Lord did in your life t- this week. He sustained me so that I could take my next breath. He opened my eyes in the morning so that I could face the day. He walked before me and prepared my way so that I could do the things that he called me to do. That's not nearly as exciting as getting out of a wrecked car and being transported over to the side and not being touched by the damage, right? But that's what the Lord does for us, doesn't it? It says he sustains our next breath. You cannot breathe. You cannot survive another moment unless the Lord intervenes. That's kind of mundane. I mean, I I like to breathe, I like to live, but that's what the Lord does. He sustains us. He orders our David. Now, David takes the mundane into consideration when we see these, these words, all of thy wonders, thy marvelous works, because he uses the same word three times in describing three different issues in life. Okay, In Psalm 106, He's talking about the parting of the Red Sea. And he uses that same word, the marvelous works of our Heavenly Father, as he parted the sea. And then he uses it in Psalm 71 for something much less, we would say in our humanists, much less marvelous than the parting of the Red Sea. It is the daily growth that happens in your life. These are marvelous works of the Lord. And then he uses it again in Psalm 119 to talk about the mysteries the things we don't fully understand that are marvelous works of the Lord. So when we look at what David is talking about here, we see the fabulous and we see the very mundane and the ordinary. So that is what we are to praise God for. Both those great things that he does in our life as well as getting us through the day. What did God do for you this week? He got me through Wednesday. Let me tell you. Well, how did he do that? He said, he just gave me the energy. I kept my mouth shut a couple times. I spoke some good words of kindness, and he got me through the day. Great. Praise God for those things. So the second thing, that that's the first thing. The second thing is David then describes that by finding the simple and expressing gladness in the joy of the Lord. He says what? I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will be glad and rejoice in you. Very simply, that is our choice to choose to rest and exalt the Lord and be glad in what he has done. Just, it doesn't mean you have to chase after it. It means the Lord has done this. He has, it, may, it may not have done it to you, but he has done these things. I will rejoice in the work of the Lord and I will be glad in it. 
And then the third thing he gives us that God wants us to do with our whole heart is to sing praise to his name, to celebrate, to honor his name, to give glory, to lift high the name of our Heavenly Father, to lift high the name of Christ. Those are the three things, he says. Now Spurgeon tells us along these lines, he says, to be silent over God's mercies is to incur the guilt of ingratitude. To be silent over God's mercies is to incur the guilt of ingratitude. Well, what's the Lord done for you? Oh, this is normal stuff. You, you want to tell me? You want to praise the Lord about it? Oh, the Lord's, you know what? The Lord knows what he's done. Why do I have to praise him for it? Oh, the guilt of ingratitude. He goes on to say, it's easy to act as basely as the nine lepers who after they had been cured of their leprosy, returned not to give thanks. Remember, ten lepers. They're healed. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. They're on the way to the priest. They look at themselves. The leprosy is gone. One comes back. The other nine, they're gone. Only one comes back to praise the, the Lord. To forget to praise God is to refuse to benefit ourselves. For praise, like prayer, is one of the great means of promoting the growth of the spiritual life. It helps to remove our burdens, to excite our hope, to increase our faith. It is a healthful and invigorating exercise which quickens the pulse of the believer and nerves him for fresh enterprises in his master's service. You can tell that's Spurgeon still, okay, the way that he writes. But it is so good. I mean, what does praise do to us? It focuses our, our lives and our hearts upon the Lord. We see what he's done. Weak hearts will be strengthened. Drooping saints will be revived as they listen to our songs of deliverance. Man, I'm just, I'm just dry. The Lord's not talking to me. I read the word and I'm not hearing anything. I go to worship and I'm just going through the motions. And you sit next to somebody and they begin to tell you about what is happening in their life. They begin to praise the Lord through the mundane, very probably, maybe something fabulous. And all of a sudden you're going, yeah, I've seen the Lord work that way too in my life. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And all of a sudden you're, you're changed because someone has praised God. So in the first two verses, he gives us three reasons for praising God. Reasons that are all valid, reasons that should fill our hearts. And then in the next couple verses, he gives us three things that I want to say are kind of particular to a king of God's covenant people. Okay, but maybe we can pull out some things that will help us as well. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before thee. For thou hast maintained my just cause, thou dost sit on the throne judging righteously. So David praises God for defending him. And when we see that God defends him, what he's also talking about is the entire nation of Israel. He defends because you can't divorce the king of Israel, of God's covenant people, who's been chosen and anointed by God from his people. So David saw God move against his enemies and defend him on the principle of what is right and wrong. God is not, uh, what's the word I want, dispassionate. God is passionate about right and wrong. He is passionate that his people pursue what is right and flee from what is wrong. And when we have that choice about what kind of decision to make, he wants us to make those decisions about right. 
So God is not always neutral in the conflicts of men, nor is he always picking sides in the conflicts of men. And because, and, you know, in, in, in conflicts, there are those who uh, are going to come out and say, well, you know, my cause is right and my cause is just and God is on my side. Which side of which wars throughout history have said that? Most sides have both gone to church and prayed for the safety of their soldiers, prayed for their victory. Uh, you know, sometimes God's on neither side. But yet, sometimes God uses those conflicts for his purposes. Whether they be, now, now I, I don't want you to think that it's just wars. We'll get to that in a moment. Sometimes it's just conflicts between two neighbors over a property line. Now, you say, well, what kind of conflict is that? Well, I mean, I know two guys who lived together or lived next door to one another for many, many years. And one day the guy wanted to put up a fence, so he put up a fence. And then his neighbor looked over and said, I think your fence is on my property. And the guy said, no, no. So he went out and had a survey done, and the fence was six inches over on the guy's property. He said, you've got to tear down the fence and move it over. Now, these were guys who had lived next door to one another for some 30 years, were good friends, went to the same church. They became alienated over six inches of property in a fence. They went to court over that. And each one said in their minds that God was on their side. Ew. How do we get two political parties that both say that, that their cause is right, but yet they take opposite positions? God's on my side. No, God's on my side. God's on the right. God's on the left. Well, like I said, sometimes God uses conflicts and this division for his purposes. And, and when I began to look at this, I didn't have to look any further than what happened during the Civil War or the war between the states. The great revival that happened during the 1863 and 1864 in particular. And I'm, I'm quoting here. said, although David, the Davis administration was not as supportive of organized religion as it could have been, many of the Confederate military leaders were superb. Of particular were Generals Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Polk. Lee and Jackson did all within their power to encourage the spreading of the gospel of the Army of Northern Virginia. Similarly, Union General George McClellan declared that the North's holy cause, there's somebody was sure God was on their side, justified divine services every Sunday morning that military necessity would allow. Union General Olive, Oliver Howard, commonly referred to as the Christian general, would himself preach to the troops when a regular chaplain or minister was not available. And although revivals took place throughout the war, it was during the late fall of 63 through the spring and summer of 64 that was subsequently called the Great Revival. Although the event is best documented in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, it actually took place in both northern and southern armies in both Virginia and the Tennessee theaters of war. Virtually every Confederate brigade was affected, and approximately 10% of the soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia accepted Christ. Night after night, troops participated in prayer meetings, worshipped, listened to ministers proclaim the good news. Virtually every gathering ended with soldiers coming forward to accept Christ or receive prayer. When a pond or river was nearby, the soldiers would frequently step forward for baptism, regardless of how cold the weather was. 
So sometimes when we have these disagreements, the Lord uses them for his purposes. And here it's not as if the Lord was taking sides, but he said, in a sense, I'm translating what the Lord did, this is a chance for revival and I'm going to move in a powerful way with the Holy Spirit. Hundreds and thousands came to Christ. So understanding this should not make us think God is immediately on our side, but it should make us think that I need to be on God's side. Okay? Remember, we don't pray, Lord, come and bless what we are doing. How do we pray? Lord, let me do what you bless. That's what we need to pray. Okay? Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Thou hast rebuked the nations, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. You got any enemies you want the Lord to blot out forever and ever? The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. Thou hast uprooted the cities, the very memory of them has perished. So God is praise, David is praising God for his victory, his victory over his enemies. In the context here, David's enemies have been turned back by the Lord. God's upholding his people, his promised covenant people. It's probably impossible for us to experience the same things. I mean, you might be, in a sense, persecuted, feeling persecution from someone, and you pray that the Lord would hold them back or, 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 or move them away. When I was in, uh, working in Youth for Christ in Pennsylvania, and we had a, uh, uh, an unfriendly school administration that didn't want us to have access to the school in any fashion, we would often pray for revival or removal. Okay, Lord, revive the principal's heart or send him to a better job. Okay, <laughs> We never prayed that he would go to a worse job. We want him to go to a better job. And often that would be the case. Now, is there an enemy we want blotted out from this world? There's one. There's one. And his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word is Jesus Christ. That's the enemy that we want blotted out. And, and he is utterly defeated, but we are waiting for the fulfillment of that day. When Christ came out of that grave, you know, I think Satan went, well, I thought I had him. I thought I had him there. I thought we were done. We had won. And, and no, he had lost. Verses 7 and 8. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So we praise God for his mercy. We praise God for his mercy. Now, here we have a reminder that we need to praise him for his mercy and his righteous judgment, his righteous rule. Sometimes his wrath is clearly evident in the world, and we need to praise him for his wrath. Remember in Romans chapter 9, it says, you know, he's got vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And he exercises his wrath on particular vessels so that the vessels of mercy might understand that mercy. That we might rejoice in that mercy. That we might give him praise. Now, we want the Lord to destroy evil. Understand that. And, and we should rejoice when evil is destroyed. But evil is defined by the Lord. Okay, remember the two guys in the fence. Maybe one of them would have been jumping for joy if his neighbor had been destroyed by the Lord for that six inches that are mine. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about as the God defines evil, when it is destroyed, we should rejoice. Sometimes God lets evil flourish for a season to finish and fulfill his purposes. 
Sometimes he acts in first causes himself to destroy evil. Sometimes he acts in second causes. Sometimes third causes to destroy evil. We should rejoice when we see evil destroyed. A thousand years after this was written, Paul, Acts chapter 17, he's on Mars Hill, and he quotes this verse. He says, he shall judge the world in righteousness. That's how God will judge. So we praise the God who's the righteous judge. We praise him because he is full of mercy. We praise him because he cares for us. So let's pray. Lord, you have you've done wonderful works, and, and, and our minds can easily recall those passages, especially from the Old Testament, that talk about your great saving actions for your covenant people in the Old Testament. And we rejoice in those, and, 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 and we give you praise for those, and we need to tell people about them. But, but they're also the acts that you've done in our life, and we think... Well, I've never seen the Red Sea part or, 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 or been fed manna for all those years. But we each, as believers, have had a great miracle in our life. We've been changed from an enemy of God to a child of God. We've been changed from one who was bound by the, sin, by the chains of sin to one who was bound to the things of the Spirit. We have been given new hearts we have been given new clothes of righteousness to put on. These are the great works that we see each believer has in his life. And then we see some simpler things where you just have, have sustained us. You've, you've watched over us. You've protected us sometimes from our own stupidity, sometimes from the stupidity of others. Sometimes you have protected us in the midst of things that we thought would crush or destroy us. Lord, you have given us such a great gift in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You call us now to live in those, walk in those footsteps, live in that path to proclaim the praises and the glories of our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.